Industry Under Pressure. Innovation in its finest hour. This is the Oil and Gas Technology Podcast, where sharp minds reveal the brilliance and sheer determination turning great ideas into new realities. Hear about how it happens in real life with your host, Michael O'Sullivan. The views of the host are expressly his own and should not be construed as the views of any other corporation, consortium, governing body, or interplanetary federation. All right, folks, we've got a great one for you today. We got uh, we have a, a famous celebrity, yeah, famous celebrity for the guest today. Uh, I, you know, I, I guess that might be an exaggeration, but but he is pretty well known in certain circles, and uh, so I'm going to get to that in just a few minutes. But first, but first, uh, well, wait, first things, first things first. I, I have this really interesting thing I want to I want to look at uh, about batteries. Uh, I'm going to do a little, we're going to do a little history lesson. It's been a while since I've done a history lesson. And I know I got a little bit, uh, I got a little spun up on some other issues the last couple of episodes. So for those of you who are getting tired of that, uh, going back to the regular program here. Um, uh, but first I do need to know, I need to tell you who the sponsor is of the show. And in order for me to tell you who the sponsor is, I need to know who it is. And in order for me to know who it is, I need to keep, I need to do two more clicks while I'm busy, uh, while I'm busy talking with you. Let's see, this is going to be the, uh, this is going to be the week of May 20th. So you're hearing this, uh, your first opportunity to hear this is, I guess, Tuesday, May 24th. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Oh, yes. Yes. This episode of the Oil & Gas Tech Podcast. By the way, welcome to the Oil & Gas Tech Podcast, which is produced by, as as you all know, but I have to say it every once in a while, the Oil & Gas Global Network, which is the largest and most listened to network of podcasts in the oil, or for the for the oil and energy industry. And by the way, by the way, uh, we got we, we got contacted this week by Apple. Um, and, uh, you know, because most, because uh, they, in in terms of industry podcasts, if you listen to industry business type podcasts, um, I don't know, Apple is still the the major player on, on that. Uh, Spotify is, is Spotify is catching up in uh, you know uh, entertainment, sports, and things like that. But but in the industry world, it's still Apple. And um, uh, but if you listen to Spotify, then good for you because I think that's fantastic. Um, uh, anyway, Apple Apple got in touch with uh, with us here at OGGN with with Mark Lacour actually and said, "Hey, uh, you guys are a big deal. We need to uh, talk to you about some special arrangements." So I don't we don't know what the details are on that yet, but it is kind of exciting. So thanks to all of you for listening and making us a big deal. Because if you didn't, then we wouldn't be. All right, where was I? Oh yeah, today's sponsor. Today's show is made possible by our good friends, and I mean, whenever I say good friends, I mean that because they're good friends of OGGN and uh, and also the oil and gas industry. And today it is Anderson Hauser, and of course you know, you know Anderson Hauser. If you're if you're involved in oil and gas operations, uh, they're a household name, uh, especially when you think about instrumentation and measurement and things like that. But did you also know that? Uh, Anderson Hauser is bringing their game to the digital transformation scene and uh, and doing a lot of fantastic things in terms of uh, new capabilities on all those uh, uh, all those types of processes and operations. So have a look at endris.com and you will learn all about it. Many thanks to uh, them for uh, for all the, all the all the stuff that they sponsor here at OGGN. All right. Uh, where are we? Oh yes. 
We are up to the fun part. Here we go. I'm I'm going back to my uh, my old friend Wikipedia here, uh, which I know if you're if you really want to uh, conduct academic study, this isn't really where you want to go. But if you just want to get some some quick, easy to find, good information, especially about things that happened in the past, uh, this is not a bad source. And I am on a page entitled "The History of the Battery," the battery, the or as my grandfather used to say, the battery. And uh, let's see, I'm in the section, uh, the heading uh, under invention. So, uh, so batteries are obviously a big topic, and, and you're going to hear um, you're going to hear us talk about batteries a little bit on the show today. And so, I thought it would be fun to, uh, as I am often wont to do, uh, to look at uh, where how, how did it all get started? How did we get started with this battery business? And and in the uh, section titled invention uh, under the history of the battery. Uh, what we have here is something, all right, from the 18th, no, mid-18th century. Uh, so for those of you who didn't learn about this in school, that's the 1700s, not the 1800s. From the mid-18th century, it's a math thing. You go back, to, it starts at zero. So anyway, um, mid-18th century on, before there were batteries. Now, I know some of you. Uh, the younger crowd is saying, "What do you mean before there were, <laughs> before there were batteries? How, what, how did you, how did you, what did you use to power your phone?" Uh, and the answer is, you had to keep it plugged in. You had to, you had to stay close to the wall. That's all you could do. And uh, let's see, before there were batteries, experimenters, ex- those who experiment, used uh, something called, and I'm not, I've never heard of this before, um, so I don't know if I'm going to say it correctly. Leyden jars, L-E-Y-D-E-N jars to store. Electrical charge. <laughs> it sounds like some sort something you would bring to a party, like a practical joke kind of a thing. <laughs> like here, look what's in this jar. Um, uh, uh, oh, here we go. A Leyden jar is an electrical component which stores a high voltage electric charge between electrical conductors on the inside and outside of a glass jar. It's uh, there's a little drawing of it here. Um, yeah, it, it looks like a. I mean, it looks like somebody's got a bottle rocket inside a uh, jar of water. I don't know. I, it typically consists of a glass jar with metal foil cemented to the inside. How do you like to have that job? Your job is to cement metal foil to the inside of the jar. Anyway, this is some sort of uh, electrical charge holding booby trap jar that people were experimenting with. And uh, uh, and one of the people experimenting this was the colonial American inventor, Benjamin Franklin, um, who, who may have been, may have been the first to call his grouping an electrical battery. Uh, I guess, oh, so putting, oh, I, I skipped over a part here. Hooking several laden jars together to create a stronger charge. And one of them, one of the, one of the people who was <laughs> just, just like we used to do with fireworks, folks. Uh, one of the person, one of the people who was linking these things together uh, to create a uh, stronger charge was Ben Franklin. And, and he was the first, he may have been, may, may have been the first to call his grouping an electrical battery. And now we get to the whole, this is why we call it. Now, have you ever wondered why a battery is called a battery, and also uh, uh, a group of military weapons is also called a battery, and uh, and and it's because it was a play on words, uh, exactly exactly that he was he was doing a play on words for a military battery of, of weapons, and he called it an electrical battery, and there you have it, folks, the beginnings of the battery and why we call it such. Now, um, 
I'm gonna move on because uh, because we got a because we got a, a a good, robust, hearty conversation coming your way, and I don't want to use any more time. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the OGGN Spotlight, Mr. Mark Mills. And we are here back again with uh, Mark Mills. Uh, well, I'm not here actually. We're we're in the remote configuration again because uh, <laughs> I haven't persuaded you yet to come down here to Houston and do one. But um, but thanks, Mark. Thanks for. Uh, I, I know I know you got tons of stuff on your schedule and and uh, and New England is calling you for the summer. But I appreciate you making time. It's always good to escape to Maine in the summer because it's a little cooler than what goes on in uh, Houston. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, even and and you know, uh, so you're in Washington D.C. and I, I've been there many times. That is no picnic in the summer. Washington is not a, a no, it's, easy. It's yeah. like Houston. We, yeah. I've I've been here thirty plus years, and we've had August where every day is over a hundred, hundred two, hundred four, hundred one, yeah, yeah. and saturation humidity. I mean, same. Yeah, yeah. Just feels yeah. like feels like a humid, hot. Houston without the beauty of Houston skyline. <laughs> That's right. Which we <laughs> yes, what we what we lack in uh, terrain we make up for in skyline. But um, the, no, the, so I we laugh about this because everybody always associates the humidity. But um, but in the summertime, I, and I've been I've been here since the since the eighties. Uh, so I'm I'm one of the weirdos who kind of likes the warm weather now. But um, and I complain if it gets cold at all. But. Uh, uh, so, like the best time in the summer, believe it or not, is like in the middle of the afternoon when it gets hot enough, like just the temperature is hot enough that it actually burns off some of the humidity, and the humidity drops yeah. to to like sixty percent. And then, and then, even though yeah. you feel like you're like on a barbecue grill, it actually feels better. It's it's not. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you, right. if we if we if we were about t- temperatures for most of history, for most of humanity. Uh, being warmer is better than being cold. It's just uh, you know that plants, animals, humans—they uh, all do better and warm. That's a good point. Now, uh, so we didn't plan to talk about this, and I'm go- we're going to do the "Who Are You" thing just for those people who may not know. But, but I did read an article recently about, and I forget who wrote this uh, or where I read it, but it was um, this guy was basically making the case for rising temperatures improving, uh, like greening greening the earth because of, of uh, you know, because vegetation grows better and all of these. I, I can't remember. I can't remember the details that he, it sounded pretty convincing the way he laid it out. But is that, is that something that, uh, uh, is, is that one of your, is that one of your uh, 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 points that you like to argue? Sure. Well, it's, you don't have to make the case. You just have, it's, it, it's a indisputable fact that. <laughs> okay. Plants. <laughs> Primary Maybe it was foods. your article. Maybe I was reading your article. <laughs> Could have been. I, the last time I've written anything about climate was in my book long ago, in the bottomless well. We necessarily had a chapter on climate debate because you can't write about energy sure, and not sure. ultimately deal with that debate. But right. setting aside one's opinions about human <clears throat> beings' role in impacting the environment, humans indisputably impact the environment. We're, we're a big yeah, species. Sure. Big capabilities. Uh, plants c- 
consume carbon dioxide. It's a you know botany 101. That's what they eat. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. 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 That right? was the other thing. The, the the CO2 thing. Right. 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 Yeah. So if, if you have a warmer world with more CO2, this 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 greens the world. We know if we look at satellite images of the Earth, we have now have a half century of really high resolution. <clears throat> yeah. Full planet mapping. We know the Sahara has shrunk. Uh, the uh, total uh, greening of the Earth has increased over the last half century dramatically. And uh, just as a bot- botanical fact, as and this is something that uh, greenhouse operators, but I don't mean the people who grow vegetables or plants for, <laughs> right. for, for business. The good kind of greenhouse, yeah. yeah. The, the, those kind of greenhouses. Yeah. They What increases the CO2 concentration in a greenhouse to usually two to three times the ambient in the atmosphere sure. because that accelerates plant growth and it also reduces the water requirements you need, which is why deserts shrink because the way plants uh, absorb CO2 is through their pores. If there's higher concentration of CO2 in the air, the pores don't have to be as wide open to absorb the CO2. The pores are also where plants lose water they respirate mm. that way. Yeah, so they yeah. don't lose as much water while they're breathing. They breathe CO2. So that's why greenhouses can use uh, lower levels of water to grow uh, plants faster. Right, right. Which right. is kind of it. Anyway, I, you know, it doesn't matter what, what people think about climate change. One thing I do know, I mean, it really doesn't matter because we're, we're not going to change we're not going to be able to make much difference of whatever no, happens we're, in the future. We're bought in. We're bought into the, well, to the story. Whatever yeah. it is, the, the real question from my head as a former scientist really falls into to two big questions. First is when did we figure out what the perfect temperature for the planet was? Why, why was that temperature, <laughs> let's say, what it was in 1952? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. There's, yeah. No, there's really, you know, it's a very complex system. And obviously, higher and lower temperatures have impacts. But... There's, there's no consensus on, in science what the perfect and right temperature is. So that's a science question. The other would be a, a science question, which has to do with the scale of planet Earth. The idea that there's a thermostat, implicit or explicit on the planet, that we can adjust to that perfect temperature yeah. requires a level, level of hubris unparalleled in human history. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good. Point. <laughs> that's a good point, and and uh, it, there is impact. I mean, we and it's not. It is funny how people kind of tend to think that uh, that what we're seeing right now is like the first time that we've ever had to uh, deal with the impact of. I mean, the Romans lost huge sections of their, uh, you know, the the fertile lowlands when there was something happened in the climate. I don't remember the details now, but I remember a whole bunch of the coastland disappeared at one point during the Roman Empire, right? Um, well, if you, actually, if you look at w- w- archaeologists regularly unearth seaports that are miles inland going back 2,000 years. In other words, the ocean was enough higher uh, – 2,000 years ago that some seaports were several yeah. miles inland from where the, where the coast is now. I mean, the whole you know, geophysical history of the planet Earth is fascinating. It really is an interesting area of science. I mean, cynically, I'm delighted we're spending so much money to understand the geophysics of the planet. It's an important thing because it's all yeah. we got to live on. It's sort of science fiction to think that we're going to have another place to live anytime in the foreseeable future. So we're, we're stuck with our planet. <laughs> 
true. But yeah. it, the thing I write about in my book, of course, obviously, every time I talk anywhere, I have to. Yeah, so, and I'm sorry, and I meant to. We skipped over the whole part about who you are. And last time you were plugging the book, and and uh, of course I uh, still am. I know, I know that I know that your sales went up dramatically after you were on the show last time. So absolutely. Um, so three so, more so, so let's back up for just a second. So um, so you are uh, you're still you're still a you're still a, a fellow at Manhattan Institute, right? The uh, yep. the famous yep. the famous Manhattan Institute think tank. And I know you mentioned before you're still working with the guys down here at Montrose Lane uh, with the investment fund. Uh, there was something else. I is are you there's a thing with Northwestern too, right? Is there something that you I, do yeah, I, have, I have a honorific faculty fellowship with uh, Northwestern University's engineering school, which which sounds more vaunted than it is in the sense of my responsibilities. It gives me the pleasure of talking to and working occasionally with some very bright uh, engineers and scientists at that school. Yeah, really yeah. Uh, impressive. It's you know it's one of the it, at least I'm biased. Obviously, I didn't go there. I went to Queen's University in Canada, but <laughs> yeah. I, I would put Northwestern in the top four uh, engineering multidisciplinary universities in the right. country. It's just yeah. an impressive institution. Sort of Carnegie Mellon, MIT uh, class of uh, institution. It's just they're all sort of the same league, same yeah. kind of professors. Do they really still get math grades? Are they still giving math grades there at uh, <laughs> North Last I checked, I, uh, <laughs> I, I was a uh, math is hard apparently. Uh, <laughs> it so turns out. Yeah. I, I discovered it was hard. I was a dual major when I started, uh, dual physics math major, and then I dropped the math to a minor because I discovered well math is actually hard. Physics, was physics. Was actually the physical wasn't easier. I just guess I suppose I was more interested in it. That was probably yeah. the real. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, um, so anyway, in the middle of all uh, of all that fellowing, you, uh, you you do have this <laughs> recent book that uh, that I'm trying to remember the title of. It's something about the future and transformation and digital. <laughs> <laughs> the cloud and you're a revolution. And you're a the technology forecaster. You're also, yeah. I think, it says on your LinkedIn that you're a technology forecaster. So what are so what are you forecasting? Right? What is your book? What, what's what's the book forecasting for us here on well, Earth? Yeah, I think this is a book because you have an energy-centric audience. I mean, and I do a lot of writing and work in the energy domains, not just as an investor, right, but right. also as a as a pundit, as it were. Yes. Um, I used to be a practitioner. But yeah. there's, there's three or four chapters on energy in the book because it's impossible to write about technology without writing about energy. And it's impossible to write about energy without understanding technology. They're inextricably related. Yeah. Um, for all sorts of obvious reasons, and making forecasts require understanding the physics of energy and the, the the realities of what new technologies are being developed. But I, you know, I, the, the book essentially is based on a premise of something I've said other times, other places, is that human beings, especially innovators, have for all of history history been much better and much more much more fecund at inventing ways that use energy. Mm-hmm. Than in ways to produce energy, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, it's true. True. Yeah, you just can look see that. around you, right? And, yeah, and, and that, that's actually a physics thing, kind of, because there aren't that many ways to produce energy. They're pretty limited. This sort of unlimited multitude of options stuff. It either has to be burned, or it has to move. Mm. Something <laughs> and, has to and move you, it. Well, it's wind and water, things that you can convert, things that move into useful energy. And you can convert heat into useful energy. 
And um, there's there's some there's a couple of the two newest things, of course, are the new pieces of physics in the 20th century, which was the photovoltaic effect for which Einstein right. got the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a new phenomenology because it's direct conversion. And right. of course, nuclear fission, which is also, a, in a sense, a direct conversion because you don't burn anything. It makes heat, but yeah, you don't have yeah. to use the heat. You can, it's, yeah. a, it's a phenomenology different than heat and yeah, motion. Yeah, right? sure. So, so, but anyway, uh, the book the book's about technology broadly, uh, and I do think that we are, despite all of our problems politically and our economic problems, which you're probably going into another recession. Governments are particularly good at creating recessions. They they do are excessively good. All yeah, of history, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not because let's just say it's not necessarily because of malice. There might be malice in some people's hearts, I suppose. It's because economies are complicated and people think they're smarter than they are and they do dumb things yeah. and they create recessions and then we usually fix them. Sometimes it takes longer because recessions are painful and voters don't like them. And so you end up fixing them. Yeah. Well, we can't, so my view on that is we can't resist trying to get in there and turn the dials. And, well, yeah, that, that's right. And we right. started turning the dials a long time, you know, so so yeah. way back when, and, and probably before this, but certainly with the beginning of the Federal Reserve and other th other programs that came along in 100 years ago, um, uh, or in the last 100 years, we started turning the dials. And once you start turning the dials, like you're stuck. Now you have to keep it's turning pretty, the dials because, you, because the system can never really go back to its natural flow anymore because now you've 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 turned the dials. That's that's my I think, uh, I think simplistic the, the, view. The problem is, is that there's a myth in the sense that and they're both caricatures that essentially free markets are not perfect. They have they can they free markets can create recessions too. Uh, sure. And, oh yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And and they create problems, but free markets on average work far better than controlled markets and it's because we don't know enough about the markets to control them so that we have too many knobs you end up creating more problems than you solve because of the complexities of civilization and human nature yeah, and complex yeah, so yeah. it's a choice between we'll call it the lesser of evils because in both cases you won't get a perfect outcome but you're more likely to have growth history has shown the the lighter your lighter your footprint is on the yeah yeah, growth creators. Not that you shouldn't have, you know, some knobs. That's what government is. Government, we organize governments. Uh, yeah. To you know, put boundaries around some things, whether it's environmental impacts or hostile neighbors or sure. you know, all the sure. things that we yeah. care about. But the, the technology. Back to my book. The, I mean, my, well, <laughs> I do acknowledge that that <laughs> governance matters. Getting politics right matters enormously because if you get it wrong, you get Venezuela or the Soviet Union, and it's obviously not a good outcome. So yeah. governance matters. But yeah. it, the thought experiment you would you could do is an easy one. If we if we assume our government's pretty good, it's the, it, it, you know the American system is pretty darn good. It yields an awful lot of good things, not perfect things, an awful lot of good mm. things. But the principal difference between the world today and 100 years ago is not that our government is profoundly different than it was 100 years ago. The fact mm. that, that wealth has expanded in real terms by, by 700% per capita is not mm. a consequence of different or better governance. It's a consequence entirely of technology operating yeah. in a system that allows it to mm. flourish. So the difference between how the average person lives today and any other time in history 
is entirely anchored yeah. in technology's progress in a system that allows flourishing of businesses and all the rest. Right, right, so right, right. the question you would have, I would think, would be whether or not we have progress technologically available in the next, say, 50 years mm-hmm. uh, that's comparable to what happened in the last 50 years, or have we really invented all the really, really consequential things and that mm-hmm. we really are in a period of a new normal of relatively slow growth? Well, most economists today and through all of history have predicted that the normal yeah. is the new normal. We've already and, got we we've already invented vinyls. They're coming back again. What what? Right. Well, how, how could we? we never, could they we never predicted or invented things like airplanes, transistors, <laughs> yeah, or right, pharmaceuticals. Right. So when yeah. they come along, they build economic models to tell you that if you make them better and cheaper, people will buy more of them. Wow, that's really a profound insight. But if you didn't invent the thing in the first place, you can't make it better and cheaper because it didn't yeah. exist. Yeah. And of yeah, course, yeah. in energy terms, new inventions are always energy consuming a priori. So well, there was no right. demand for energy for airplanes before they invented an airplane, and there was no right. demand for energy for computers until we invented a computer. So do we think we're not going to invent new things, new products and services? that won't be energy consuming in the future. So my book is all about a sort of a roadmap towards the magnitude, which I think is extensive, of mm. remarkable inventions that are already viable across the landscape of the three areas that, that, that determine everything about civilization, which is machines, materials, and information systems. Yeah, those, yeah. Everything that exists falls in one of those three buckets. So I, I sort of roadmap what's going on in all three, but the epicenter is the cloud, the communications infrastructure that has morphed into something that's not an internet. I mean, the cloud, we should talk about energy because uh, I'll give you an energy factoid on the cloud, but the cloud yeah. is, is different from the internet, is the internet was different from telephony, telephones, because right. we're not using it for communications. Communications is a feature that's important to the cloud. What the cloud does is doesn't do computation it doesn't just store cat videos in your iPhone pictures. It <laughs> right. does that too. Yeah. But what, what it allows you to do is to get a, available anytime, anywhere, a utility function, which I would call advice giving. Yeah. Right? If, yeah. You, if, you do a, if you do a map with Google Map, you're not asking right. for a route, you're asking for the optimal route, right. several routes based on the conditions at that time. And, and right? the reason why the cloud, the reason why the, the cl- so the connection between the cloud and this type of thing is uh, the fact that because we can have the scalable compute power on demand and the distributed computing, like like that's the thing, right? It's it's because because the computers themselves in the cloud are actually very simple. Uh, uh, you know, uh, they're they're not. Um, it's funny people don't. Like the whole idea behind cloud computing is it, the hardware is commoditized, and there's not specialty hardware, and you've got you got racks of of the same simple boxes, but it's the architecture that allows you to have the on-demand scalability. That that's where we get into this ability to now let's see what kind of advice we can give ourselves based on how much faster we can analyze this data and things like that. Right? Is that is I'll, that where you're? Well, yeah. Well, I, I, I'll dispute. You're half right. Okay. Half right is not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. It's the cloud's actually both. You're absolutely right that some of the functions, the server functions, the commu- compute, the communication functions, uh, are commoditized. Uh, but the 
nature of these processors themselves is yeah. important and changed dramatically. So you, the, we don't have a single kind of compute processor. You know, graphics processing units, GPUs, right. tensor processing units, artificial intelligence, which is a mis misnomer, but we'll call it the advice-giving processors, things that can recognize images and patterns, aren't mm -hmm. computational processors or image recognition processors. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Right. So you, you have that variety there. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. a lot of variety, but the important point is not just that there's a variety. Your point is correct. The utility function that allows not only rapid scaling, but also rapid refresh. If you buy a computer, it's the same computer you have forever long you want to put up with not having to pay money again. When you yeah. buy a utility service, you you want it to get better all the time. The service provider is always upgrading, modifying, enhancing. So you get a, an, acceler an acceleration in the efficacy of what you're getting. So it used to be, for example, that's the way electricity worked for a long, long time is the utility function allowed a central electric generator to continue to improve their maintenance and operations or thermodynamic efficiencies. Your electric rates would just go down and your reliability would go up, the two key mm -hmm, features you mm -hmm. care most about for that function. For right. computing, you want the cost to go down, the reliability to go up, and you want the, its utility function to improve, which is why I wrote the book. That's revolutionary. Utility functions typically bring you, to your point, yeah. scaling yeah. that improves reliability, reduces costs, but they, they rarely change the utility function itself. So when you turn your light on, it's still electricity illuminating a light. It does, mm -hmm. it's, it's not better light, it's just right. light. Right, right, right. When you, when you use a, a new app, the new app can do something remarkable that a previous app couldn't do at all. Some, right. you know, some of you may have, if you're interested in gardening, the one of the apps that you just take a picture of a plant, and within a, you know, literally a, a one heartbeat, it tells you what the plant is, where it grows, the condition of that plant through image recognition software that is yeah. in the cloud and remarkably powerful and accurate. I yeah, mean, that yeah. that is a that is a utility function that's profoundly different, right, right than right. just a faster computer that's a little cheaper. Yeah, so it brings the question of, of what, so what, where, so back to your point about are we done inventing things not, uh, yeah. that change our life or not? <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're just about to, and by the way, uh, the book, the interesting thing I think about the, your book is, which I, I, and I didn't start reading it, I think I got interrupted and I didn't, I didn't get all the way through, but, um, but there will be uh, a test. There will be a test. Um, is, uh, uh, but it's optimistic. So your book is like, so a lot of times, uh, you know, well, I guess it's so much of what people read now, uh, what people write rather, and what we read is so sort of dystopian <laughs> and and kind of uh, uh, you know not not optimistic anyway, at least. And uh, it, but it, but this is a, this is an optimistic viewpoint that you're putting out there, right? Which is that uh, we're we're about to uh, we we're now on kind of the next wave of new things that we're going to invent. Uh, that that right. are going to make life better, right? Well, it is an optimistic viewpoint because it's not driven by sort of a desire to find uh, a silver lining. It's 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 a derivative mm, right. to what the evidence shows that's already been invented. In fact, the principal point yeah. I make in my book is you want to predict the near future. You want to look what's already been invented, but it's not widely commercialized. 
So organic computing would be a good example. Things of biocompatible right. computing is been invented. It's being commercialized. It's not in widespread use. Why does that matter? Well, it, it radically enhances the capability to do a lot of things in diagnostic and therapeutic healthcare, which has as potentially as big an impact on future healthcare efficacy as computing itself did, let's call it for spreadsheet efficacy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there, there's yeah. some very big things going on. They, it, they link to the uh, energy world because the fact is, back to my point, that we invent a lot of ways to use energy. Computers don't make energy. They make it possible to find energy through software, mm-hmm. to find resources, if you like, to make machines operate more Right, engineer new ways of doing things. Yeah, right, right. but yeah, they yeah, use yeah. energy, and they use a lot. The global cloud, in energy terms, is a, you know, it's a, it's a biggest infrastructure humanity has ever built. We've just begun mm-hmm. to build it at the scales it's going to expand to. It uses collectively the sort of the information ecosystem now uses more electricity by a factor of two than the country of Japan. Yeah. So and, it's a big and, system. And, and when the and when the Bitcoiners come back from this mild little nosedive they just took, it's gonna. Uh, <laughs> well, there the Bitcoin yeah. stuff is actually as big as it is as a specific application. It's in the noise compared to the big. So to bit, the whole, Bitcoin, to the, right? Yeah, yeah Bitcoin yeah. mining is like Denmark worth of electricity. The cloud broadly is Japan times two. So it's, yeah, so that's big. It's right. a much bigger system. But so the, I want to get oh, back to this thing. Well, okay, go ahead. I want to come back to the thing you said about inventing new ways to use electricity because there's something going on right now that's that I think is important. But but go ahead and finish the the other part. No, I, I, we should talk because the you know it's not so much that we can't. Yeah, you know, it's just ironic that the people in the industries that are making the revolution that is a real revolution possible, which is centered on information and materials, happen to often be the same people who think that there's a revolution in energy. But there isn't. We, we don't have any new ways to produce energy. We, we can do all the old things better, and we should, yeah. including the, some of the newer things better, and we should. Yeah. But no one has invented any new physics for energy production. That so so this is so this comes around to the point, which is, um, we, so early early on, one of the first things you said was uh, that we are much we're much better at inventing way at, at finding new ways to consume energy than we are at <clears throat> new ways to produce energy and now you just kind of qualified that with the fact that it there's a, it's a, it's kind of a physics problem but we have so so uh right now we have uh headlines everywhere uh, everybody's you know watch out we're gonna have we're gonna have blackouts this summer because the power plants aren't you know now i um you know I, I can never remember in my whole life uh, so many uh, like continuous annual fears about can we supply enough power, um, and but but the one thing that I've noticed is that we're it, it seems like we're we're uh, we're we're kind of prematurely turning off some of the ways that we have of generating power uh, that work, uh, and we haven't really, the, the, like the new ways, they're not, they're not there. So what, like what's happening there? What, how, like are, are we just shooting ourselves in the foot? Is that basically just what we're doing? Yeah, uh, the short answer is one word with three letters. Yes, <laughs> yes. we are. <laughs> but, 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 but what's but the, I could, I could expand the on thinking? that. Yeah, expand, because, because, <laughs> 
because we're talking because we're not these are smart people out there right i mean they what what, what are we doing exactly so setting aside who's smart and who's not because i think um (laughs) smart might be overrated let's just deal with uh sensible let's just do sure sure sure. pragmatic yeah i think i think uh it's, it, it's an interesting problem on the why, but let's just talk about what we've actually done. The aspirations yeah. for uh, changing how we produce electricity, for example, have uh, gotten way ahead of what's possible at, in, at all or what's possible e- economically in any way that people will tolerate. So we've had for 20 years in the Western world uh, disincentives for conventional power generation, coal plants, Gas mm-hmm. plants significantly, right. but and nuclear plants for in a lot of countries you can't build new ones, and a lot of the existing ones, including especially in Germany, were shut down. Mm-hmm. So uh, you you then had this uh, almost monomaniacal focus on two energy sources, wind and solar. Mm-hmm. The the all of the above and everything is not it's just made up words. The mm. almost everything has been focused on wind and solar and batteries as a way to store the stuff produced by wind and solar, whether in a car or, say, at grid scale. So it's just a three-technology chase with huge incentives, huge mandates, requiring utilities all over the Western world to build lots of wind farms and solar arrays and requiring uh, or subsidizing, mostly subsidizing, people to buy electric cars. And uh, so the problem is obvious, as you just stated, and people are being, I think, either naive or dishonest about the obvious fact that those energy sources, wind and solar, only work when nature chooses to let you get energy, obviously. (laughs) And since all of the history of the electric industry has been devoted to providing electricity when markets need it, we've, up until the last decade or Mm. two, only Mm. put machines on the network so there was yeah. no law requiring this because it was obviously sensible. The yeah. machines that are dominantly on the network are machines that can be, and to use the language of that domain, machines that can be dispatched when the market needs the power. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like your car, you can turn it on when you need it. You don't have to turn it on. So power plants are just like that. And you have some some power plants that you can't do that to. That would be hydro dams historically, mm, and because mm-hmm. if you get droughts, they don't work conveniently; they they go <laughs> yeah. away. But but they've yeah. never in our country been more than you know fifteen percent in the last half century of electricity, it's because of that problem. So now we're adding wind and solar, which in an ideal world, you know, operate a quarter to a third of the time. When I say ideal in northern. Uh, latitudes they operate 10% of the time in any given mm-hmm. year, 10 to 12. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in, in a lot of the world, wind farms operate uh, at about 20%. And in the really windy areas, they can operate a third of the time as much as 38%. But, you know, yeah. what do you do the rest of the Those time? Those are not big numbers, no matter how, how you look. No, yeah. So yeah. what do you do the rest of the time? Well, okay, you have to have other power plants that you can turn on. But right. you've provided me with disincentives from building them. They're aging out. You don't provide enough funds for maintaining them. So as it doesn't really matter when episodic power is three to four percent, even five or ten percent of the electric supply. It begins to matter 
obviously, yeah. if it becomes a significant share of the electric supply, which is what's been going on. And then you end up well, with So let me pause you for a second. Is, I mean, it, is, it becoming a, is it becoming a significant, because this is the part that boggles my mind, because I, I keep saying, I missed the part. Somewhere in the last few years, I missed the part where we figured out how to scale and commercialize wind and solar at a, at a reasonable, at, at a substantial level. So like, it's kind of, we skipped over that and we're just charging forward. So is it now a, is it now a, are those things a substantial portion of the supply because they've ramped up or because we've reduced our capabilities in the, in the, the other areas? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is it yeah, both. Both. both? So, so to some extent we've reduced our overall capability in the interest right. of getting rid of this one and bringing this one up. Right. Yeah. And, and we can, and there's sort of a, there's sort of a talking point victory there that says, look at that. Our new renewable energy sources are now a much larger percentage of our power generation, but that right. doesn't, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything if they're not reliable, they can't be dispatched. And by the way, the reason why they're a larger percentage is because your hole went down, not because they w- went up. That's, that's, well, what my, that's what it seems like. Yeah. It depends on the country and the part of the country and the part of our country but that's essentially what happens is you prematurely retire other plants. Yeah. But if you have expanded uh, demand around the world, it's not so much what you're retiring, it's what you're building to meet new demand. Obviously, you know, once you say what I've said, everybody, we know what the stock answers are and what's in people's head. And mm-hmm. there's two, two things that are always said, and they're written, and they're written seriously. Uh, one is that, well, we'll just build lots of batteries Okay, but battery store electricity. We can talk about that. Yeah, we'll build lots of batteries. Yeah. Well, how many batteries could you? How many do you need to do this? I mean, <laughs> well, this is arithmetic. You need you need you need quantities of batteries to store electric. If if that's if the goal is to get rid of the hydrocarbon based machines that can be dispatched, because it's very easy to store coal and gas and yeah. oil, so you can turn the machines on whenever you need them. And if you can't turn on a windmill when there's no wind, so you have to build batteries. So you'd ask the question, how many batteries do I need? And the, an- the answer gets you numbers that are so big and so bizarre is to def- defy imagination <laughs> that you, you, you can't, we aren't building that many, we can't build that many. It's never mind the price, let's just set the money aside for a minute. You just aren't gonna build enough. So then the other answer is always, well, it's always windy or sunny somewhere. So you build more transmission to make sure we share when you have clouds, my neighbor doesn't and vice versa. Okay, the problem with that is twofold. One is economic and we've already seen the effects of that. You have to build far more transmission than you otherwise would on a normal grid, which costs a lot of money. And that's exactly what's going on and causing electric rates to go up. So you're saying the power is cheaper, but I have to build expensive transmission to get the cheap power. Arithmetically, that makes the power not cheap. Let's just yeah. be clear about this. <laughs> it does. So and the, the other, battery thing. Well, so go well, the battery uh, thing. Well, okay, yeah, finish that part. What other point? It's all. It's not always windy and sunny somewhere. It's just a meteorological fact. Oh, that's true. That's true. It's just not. You can have huge <laughs> swaths of the continent yeah. where there's no wind or no sun for days. Yeah. Cloud cover yeah. for days and no wind. That happens. That's what happened in the North Sea mm-hmm. with the wind mm-hmm. farms last fall when right. they had 10 days of a wind drought and the gas prices went off the charts as generators around Europe called on gas they had no long-term contracts for to keep the lights on. So we yeah. ended up with these 500% increases in, in gas literally overnight. 
and for a week. Well, if you increase the cost of a product by 500% for a week, that has a big effect for that's a big hangover, right? And, yeah. And if it had been right, a week right. and ten days, and another three days or four days, you start getting brownouts and blackouts. And that's yeah, where yeah, the world yeah. is taking itself. This yeah. Is, and then, but and then the ba- government you, is. But the battery uh, question is where we come back to. Okay, well, we'll build more batteries. Yeah. So why? So batteries are very popular right now. Everybody. Everybody. Uh, everybody is excited about battery technology and. Um, and I mean, we've got, we've got them in all the electric cars. They seem to be working just fine. Uh, Teslas have them. And Teslas are cool. Uh, why? Why? What? What are, we, what are we missing? Like, what's what's the world not getting about what about batteries? And like, why would we need so? Why would we need a, 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 this impractical large number of them? Yeah. Well, ba- there's a reason to be excited about lithium batteries. They are a big deal. I mean, storing electricity has been really hard. And that's mm-hmm. why the lithium battery got you know got a Nobel Prize, not the battery, but the three scientists and engineers yeah. who were yeah. the progenitors of it. Uh, yeah. There's a reason for that. The Nobel Committee was justified. Actually, it's an engineering prize. They didn't discover lithium; that was discovered a century earlier. But they <laughs> but they figured out how to how to use an extremely reactive element on the periodic table and make a battery uh, yeah. that. Is 400% better than a lead acid battery, r- roughly speaking. So okay. that's a okay. mit- that's a big deal. And what that did is it made possible the mobile internet and made laptops possible first. Yep, All that, yep. that, and it's make, making possible a lot of other uh, devices and both entertaining ones and life-saving ones yeah. that are meaningful. Uh, so it's a it, it, it's it is a big deal, but there's a. Um, almost like a bizarre this is typical of all all kinds of inventions i think as a sort of an amateur historian and my book plug in my book again my yeah, book yeah, has lots of yeah. historical history vignettes in it if you look at when we figured out how to do nuclear fission mm-hmm. uh roughly you know in world war one to make power plants never mind bombs people yeah. got very excited about the incredible benefits of nuclear fission for energy production, not for weapons. And just it got all kind of bubbly and goofy happy about everything from not just nuclear electricity was gonna to be too cheap to meter because it'd be so easy to get so much energy. I mean, bear in mind a pound of nuclear fuel has as much energy in it as a million Tesla batteries. So Okay. So that's so and that yeah. would be Half a million tons of Tesla a batteries. Pound, a pound of nuclear fuel has a million. Tesla the energy batteries. contained of a million Tesla batteries. That's so. Uh, you can imagine why people got pretty excited about that. So they talked about nuclear-powered cars, nuclear-powered aircraft. In fact, the Air Force built a nuclear-powered aircraft. Until uh, mm-hmm. Kennedy, President Kennedy, killed the program after I think they probably spent. Forget the mm. it was billions of dollars. I've forgotten the exact. A lot well, of money spent. Submarines, nuclear, right? Nuclear submarines. Nuclear powered. Well, but the point is, nuclear powered submarines work. Nuclear power plants at scale work, and they're very, very uh, effective use of the technology. But nuclear powered airplanes and cars don't. They're not practical uh, mm-hmm. in any sensible way. The lithium right. battery has the same characteristics. People get very excited about what you can do with it. And so we have everybody babbling about everything from all cars being battery powered to aviation being battery powered. The problem is <laughs> in the inherent, inherent set aside some other issues and money. Let's just do 
engineering physics 101. Physics, right, yeah, yeah. The, the energy density of lithiated chemicals, never mind how, just the inherent, the best, the best energy uh, inherent in it before you lose some of the density by making a machine, a battery, uh, is a roughly 5,000% less than the inherent energy density of a hydrocarbon, like oil. Mm, mm. 5,000% less. Or put differently, a pound of oil in energetic terms is worth 5,000% more than a pound of lithiated chemicals. Now, mm. you have to make a machine to release the oil energy with combustion machines, and that robs you of a lot of the potential. And you have to make batteries to make the lithiated chemicals mm -hmm. manifest themselves. And so the ratios shrink as you actually make the machines because electricity, you can do tricks you can't do in thermodynamics. But they shrink to this. Um, to replace the 100 pounds of gasoline mm -hmm. in your car, you have a 1,000-pound battery. Right. That's a right. Tesla battery. Yeah, yeah. So that's a mere 1,000% penalty, right? It's tenfold. Yeah. So yeah. you've shrunk the 5,000% penalty to a 1,000% penalty. And if you say, well, I'll make the battery twice as good in the future, which is not impossible, uh, you, then, you, then you're only 500% worse than using gasoline in the first place from an energetics, energy density yeah. perspective. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. storing electricity is very difficult, but, but having a battery that's 400% better than lead acid is very meaningful. It's what's made the Tesla possible. Yeah, and, yeah. But here, here's the, here's the economics fact that will tell you why all cars are not going to be battery powered in the, in the foreseeable future, and why Teslas or their equivalent won't suddenly, in any in the near future, become as cheap as a, con, its competing equivalent car. Because most electric cars are high-end cars. They're not the cars mm -hmm. that most people buy. Right. That's because the battery itself, depending on what car it is, its raw cost to produce is ten dollars to $15,000. So your fuel tanks. So that's already a surcharge on the whatever the car right. is, basically. Right? And the, yeah. the rest of the car is essentially the same as other cars. The electric right. motors are are roughly as expensive or more expensive than an internal combustion engine. So, yeah. and the wheels are the same, and the plastics the same. You do save, but you do save money on the on the on the gas tank, right? You, so there, that's 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 you, a couple you hundred bucks. The, the, the steel gas <laughs> tank, which costs about seventy five dollars to manufacture, <laughs> yeah, you don't need yeah. to, you don't need you don't that, need that part, right? Okay, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Weighs about <laughs> ten pounds, twelve pounds, I think. Uh, you don't need that. But yeah. here, here's, here's the problem. If we've gotten so good at manufacturing lithium batteries. We've gotten very good at, the, at this right. business because there's a lot of them being made in the world now, which is, which is great for a lot of reasons. And there will be lots of electric cars. But the question of whether they'll become price competitive in capital terms with an internal combustion engine requires that the batteries go down in cost by a lot, mm. a lot. Mm. Well, you know, not tenfold, but let, let's say at least two to threefold, certainly twofold. They gotta mm -hmm. go down a lot. 70% mm -hmm. of the cost to manufacture a battery for electric car now is entirely associated with the cost of the minerals and materials that you buy to make the thousand pound battery. So the nickel- And that only becomes, they only become more expensive as the, uh, the, the supply and demand that, problem. That's the point. Right? Yeah. The cost yeah, of yeah. a battery now is determined by the mining industry, not by the battery industry. Yeah, it's determined by yeah. the mining industry. And mining copper, mining nickel, aluminum, and making those refined minerals from the raw minerals, 
there's been no physics changes uh, in that yeah, process. The a mining long time. is yeah, it's the same. And let's not leave out the part about how lithium mining isn't exactly great for the environment. Well, uh, yeah, in, I, in the places I, where I, you, I used where to work for a mining company. I, I think miners can do things very in our country in Canada. They can do things environmentally uh, acceptable. But that's yeah. not true for how a lot of other countries do it. The rest of the world, right, right. Uh, and and so, that's where most of the minerals come from, by the way. They don't, we don't, even though we're, we're talking about doing that now, that's not what will happen in the next decade. We, we will convert a, a transportation industry from one where we're an exporter of the fuels to move the vehicles to one where we're an importer of all the critical minerals to move the vehicles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, so the lithium... So the lithium Interesting. So it's a it's a physics problem that ultimately comes down to an economics problem, which right. is uh, you can't make the and the more of it, it comes down to the cost of the raw materials and the cost and there's not really any active innovation to bring down the cost of the raw materials and so the more well, and you need to build more. Of them. There's more. There's yeah. innovation. It's just not game changing at this point. Yeah, not that's what. Yeah, not meaningful. So, um, in that at that level. So in the end, so in order to to displace the hundred pounds of gasoline, we need a thousand pounds of battery, and now we need, and we need, and to your point earlier, there's so much we we have to produce so many batteries that all that again basic supply and demand that just drives up the cost of the raw materials and. Uh, unless we figure out some way to, it doesn't matter how smart we get about making the batteries. We have to figure out some way to make the lithium cheaper. Exactly, it already has driven up the cost. So nickel, copper, aluminum are all trading at high you know, decadal or aluminum's, aluminum's case thirty-year highs because mm. of the demand for those minerals. But look, let me let me let me inject an optimistic note. However, okay. what, I'm, yeah, yeah. what I'm what I'm disputing <clears throat> is that we're going to have price parity between internal combustion engine cars. And electric vehicles for what kind of vehicles most people want to buy at any time in the foreseeable future. I'm disputing that. I don't think the evidence is there that we're even close or going to get there. But in wealthy economies, which we are in Europe is, there are more there are more cars and there are licensed drivers. Lots of people have more than one car. In fact, yeah. the majority of ho- households have more than two, uh, two cars or more. And mm-hmm. there, there is in a wealthy economy a very big market for vehicles that are not the least cost vehicle. People buy, and automakers love to sell, upsell mm-hmm. you for right. features that you like. And one of the features people like is electric drive. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of reasons you can like it. Forget the emotional save the planet stuff. They're actually they're nice cars, and there may be a reason yeah. you like that. If you happen to have yeah. a garage, pretty handy you never have to go to a gas station i mean that's that's a convenience i'd like that i've got a friend actually he's been on the he's been on the show a few times he's a uh, oggn friend uh, ration tulsi finally he's he's been wanting a tesla for a long time he finally got one he got the model y uh with the whatever the the sport package and he said and and he and i was looking at it and he said make no mistake i bought this car because i want to go fast yeah of course that's it but that's that's why he bought the car but if uh if you look at Automakers, what they've been selling in their advertising for uh, a century, they've been selling speed, comfort, yeah. features, sex appeal, right. whatever. If 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 the only thing that people bought a car for was pure utility function, there'd only be two or three kinds of automobile models, and they'd all be <laughs> relatively inexpensive, and they'd all yeah, be pretty all uncomfortable. Be the same color. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's not that's not how that market works. Not how humans work. And no, there's, that's right. a, so there's, a, there's a very big market, 
a very significant market for electric vehicles globally that's still untapped. Let's just say, pick a number. Um, if you look at America, if one in five people, which is not, we're not even there yet, right? We're, we have we have a penetration level one in a hundred at the moment. But if one in five people, one in five households, got an electric car in the coming decade or two, this lots of a huge growth in demand for electric vehicles and batteries. Uh, it has almost no impact on the global oil demand, because not just because there's so many other vehicles, but because there's so many uses for oil. In fact, if you assumed wildly optimistic outcomes for electric vehicles in the coming decade, say several hundred million on roads compared to today's 12 million, you, you reduce world oil demand by about 7 or 8%. Yeah, it's but, not huge. Which right? is... Which is a lot of oil. Well, well way, it's not, it, it's it's not as much as we reduced it during one year of 2020. Uh, well, you know, it's yeah. actually, and, and here's the flip side. The IEA pointed out that the current expectation for electric vehicle penetration in the next decade, the oil saved from that, will be entirely offset by another trend in the vehicle market, which is the SUVification, <laughs> the trend <laughs> to have larger vehicles in general. Globally, yeah. Yeah. consumes more oil, and their internal combustion engines will completely offset the offset savings there. from electric vehicles. Well, this well, is IEA also, data. There's also got to be a, a – so if we go back to what we were talking about before, where we're having a little bit of trouble ramping up the wind and the solar to really offset the power generation capabilities, something has to charge those vehicles, right? So well, yeah. so right. you take the so you take the hydrocarbons out of the gas tank, but unless right. you can produce the electricity needed to charge, you're just you're – just, it's a shell game, right? You're moving it from over here to over there. We got we to gotta have more natural <laughs> gas-powered uh, power plants. Uh, which, by the way, uh, also contribute to. Uh, uh, I saw a chart the other day that showed uh, the the advent. Uh, what basically showed so right around two thousand and eight, there's a steep drop off in the amount of CO two production right. in the U S. Power plant, generally, right? right. We, and it corresponds to fracking, really, because we were able to make oh, we were able to make gas. natural natural gas economic, right? So, oh, it did, right? Ch- cheap gas displaced coal because the yeah, burner yeah. tip cost of a BTU from gas was cheaper than coal, and it yeah. was a an unsubsidized conversion that saved consumers hundreds of billions of dollars. Right, right. Saved and, them, uh, didn't cost and, them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so all right. Well, I think we're. I'm looking at I'm looking at the clock here. I imagine I probably need to let you go, but uh, um, we could go we could go on. There's some other things. Maybe I'll say for the next time next time when you come back. Uh, but um, any uh, any any final plugs for the book here? You want to you want what what what's the title of it again? Uh, the the cloud, the cloud revolution. The cloud revolution. Okay. By Mark Mills, and I assume we can we can. What's what's your preferred place for people to buy that from? Uh, I mean, it's not my preferred. It's where everybody goes. They go to Amazon because they, they go to uh, Amazon. Everybody right, right, goes to right. Amazon, but it's okay. it's a uh, it's available anywhere. There are fine booksellers, as they say. Anywhere, anywhere, where, wherever fine books are sold. Um, exactly. it's a, it, we will put a like, link. I like to think it's a fine book. I mean, that's why I, I it, wrote it. It is. It is. <laughs> I gotta get. I got. I gotta finish reading it. Um, I will put a link uh, into the into the show notes. That'd be so great. Well, I t- I'll give you an energy factoid that's that's. Uh, oh yeah, please. It, it's implicit in and explicit in my book about technology. So back to the point where we started, we're really good at inventing ways to use energy. Mm. Much more productive there than we are producing it, uh, right. just in terms of variety. 
So the two, the two biggest uh, vectors for new sources of energy demand, other than just wealth creation, broadly speaking, people wanting bigger houses, having a car if they didn't have one, mm-hmm. uh, so two new technologies that, that we, all, we know exist but are not widely used are drones, whether it's freight drones or, or air taxis ultimately, mm-hmm. and robots. Mm-hmm. In both mm-hmm. cases, these are technologies that have de minimis use in markets compared to potential. And both, I believe, are on the cusp of profound expansion, roughly comparable to the expansion of the automobile age, 1920. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that we can realistically believe, and I try to build the case for this, that the magnitude of that industry, drones and robots are similar category of machines, will equal the magnitude of the automobile industry today. And mm-hmm. that constitutes an entirely, not just an entirely new vector for wealth creation and conveniences and productivity and all the rest, but an entirely new vector for energy consumption to manufacture and op- operate those machines. Yeah, or yeah. put it simplistically, you know, robots eat too. They need food <laughs> and their food is not with a little yeah. like what we eat. What, what does our life look like? What do you, so what do you think? So as we as you go forward, um, to, so to, to, to use your comparison to the automobile industry from the 20s, if, if um, you, you know, we can look back now and we can see what life looked like, how life looked different uh, 20, 30 years after that in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. How do, you know, 20, 30 years from now, how does, how do, how does our, the average person's life look different with this proliferation of, of robots, robots and, and drones? Yeah, I think, you know, that's, so I, I put some scenarios out, but obviously the ro- robots are already showing up first in the workplace, yeah. not in our homes. Yeah. Uh, and that's true, by the way, with cars and wheeled machines. That's where yeah, they began. Right, 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 farms, right, right. Deliveries, right, things like that. <clears throat> that uh, and, and, but, there, you know, uh, personal robots are not a crazy idea. This seems like science fiction because we've talked about them for not only decades, the idea of a robot goes back to Greek mythology. So it's not a, a new mm-hmm. idea. Right. Yeah. The idea yeah. of flying goes back to Greek mythology, in fact. But it, it took to the 20th century till we could actually put people in airplanes or fly them around. Mm-hmm. So I think you'll find that uh, workplaces, which would be typical, the biggest infusion of robots today, in absolute and relative terms, is in uh, the supply chain, particularly in warehouses. And mm-hmm. by that, I mean not only robots that don't look like robots of science fiction, though, look like turtles carrying around you know, uh, racks, but anthropomorphic kind of robots working alongside of humans, yeah. uh, moving boxes, emptying trucks, because there aren't enough people to do the jobs. They're not replacing people. They're amplifying yeah. people. That's We're where it starts. We're seeing that in oil and gas. We're seeing that on, on, yeah. on the big platforms and in sure. refineries and things like that, too. Yeah, and same, then, same idea. Then it, goes, it goes from there. It goes into healthcare because... If you can imagine what would be a machine that can work in the environment which humans work in, a robot, is much more useful than forcing people to work in machine environments that only machines can work in. So the robots of the 20th century were caged because, you know, a production line for a car, if you got in that cage with a robot, it would kill you, not intentionally, because it doesn't know you're there. It it hadn't read Asimov was the problem, yeah. It it, it didn't know the rules, yeah. It didn't know the rules. (laughs) Whereas the robots now know the rules. And yeah. obviously you can imagine I, I, yeah. I cite Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. But, but robot, robots are, um, are energy, ener- machines that will require a lot of energy to make. Uh, they'll probably require 
as much energy to manufacture as a car, and mm-hmm. they won't use as much energy as a car. But I'll go back to I'll end with another physics fact for you. Okay. I mean, anytime we use machines to replace human labor, this is a good thing. Yeah. But machines are not as efficient as the biological machine that we are. So mm-hmm. moving a pound of goods, carrying something, moving something with machinery instead of with humans, humans, that activity, on average, you increase the energetic cost by tenfold. It just Ooh. does. Wow. Humans are wow. really energy efficient, but they're not economically efficient, right? In the sense that if you want to amplify your your uh, capabilities, uh, to say at a construction site, you probably use a backhoe, not a shovel. Well, yeah. obviously, you could repl- you could replicate the backhoe with a lot of people with shovels. That's what we did through all of history. Yeah. And those people with shovels, a hundred people with shovels, do not use as much energy as one backhoe. Not even close. Yeah. But the backhoe is far more productive. That's yeah. the nature of sort of the energy machinery relationship that I try to illuminate in my book that I think is why I'm optimistic because we're going to invent a lot more stuff like that. This is why you see that, see, it all comes back to the matrix. This is why the machines <laughs> had to figure out how to use the people as power, right? Because because all this all this uh, innovation, uh, it, it is interesting though. So if you kind of read between the lines and everything that you're saying here uh, is, is this amazing innovation, this next wave of innovation that we have with the things that we're inventing just leads to more uh, energy, you know, need for energy. Like you said, we're better at inventing yeah. ways to use the energy, uh, much like we're, be- we're better. Sometimes our kids are better at finding ways to spend the money than they are at making the money. But, <laughs> but, but, it's a, uh, a good analogy it, for human race. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, it kind of applies to everything. But, um, but our energy, but, but if we think, um, but I guess here's the way it strikes me is, is, so for the people who are out there under this uh, this thing that, that like you said you know it's 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 the story this is in fact I, I mentioned uh, an Asimov quote on the it'll, it'll just be the last episode that people heard right before this one where he said at one point um, nothing has to be true but everything has to sound true and uh, <laughs> and so and so it sounds true that we're on the verge of displacing all this bad uh, hydrocarbon stuff with uh, these new forms of energy as much as much as that really isn't true even though it sounds true it's about to be a whole lot more not true because yeah. we're because we're unleashing a whole new like 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 chunks of demand that we haven't even had to try to deal with before well, it, when it, we were doing things right. the normal way. Yeah. And yeah. The, the new chunks of demand come from the old things that a lot of people don't have yet. Most most of the world people don't have a car or a television yeah. or, or right, an air conditioner right. or refrigerator. Right. A lot of the world. Right. So and they then have there's cell the new phones, so they all have iPhones. I know they have they iPhones. Have smartphones. But they, <laughs> smartphone <laughs> penetration has been enormous. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. Sure. And from that they generate some wealth and education and from there you get Yeah. You want a car and a house and an air conditioner. Right, all that stuff. But uh, that's why the 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 cat the categorization problem we have now is this idea that there's going to be an energy transition it fails because all of history shows that all new ways of producing energy for society from existing technology new tools and techniques have always been additive we've never replaced we've changed primacy mm, but we've right. never replaced ever yeah. in the history we use more wood today Right, that we did 50 years ago. Wood burning still is twice as much energy for the world as solar electricity. 
twice yeah. as much today. Wood burning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wood burning is not going to go away uh, for a long, long time. But it, the coal is not going away. It's increasing. It's, it's, uh, it's a supply and consumption. But the future will will need additive. We need to, we need to, we'll need electric cars. We need more windmills and solar panels. But we need them to be integrated in grids in a way that allows the grids to stay lit and provide yeah. power inexpensively. Yeah. And you don't yeah. do that with subsidies and mandates. You you do that with technology and innovation. Right, right. And you have to be patient because policymakers want this accelerating transition narrative is not only uh, not possible, pushing it is inflationary. And now we're discovering what that means with a double whammy. Pushing stuff that's expensive is inflationary. And wind and solar at scale are still expensive as our electric yeah. cars. Yeah. And then punishing the stuff that's cheap, like disincentives for drilling and leasing on lands to mm -hmm. drill, increases the cost of the stuff that provides 84% right? of the world's energy, which right. is inflationary. So you get a double whammy, which is exactly what's going on in the world now. Yeah. And I, I think maybe to end on an optimistic note, it's, it's a yes. quasi-political note, people are not going to be patient with this. Uh, I think it's already clear in the polls. Gallup does a tracking poll every month, and they've been doing this for decades. What's the most important problem in the world today? Open-ended mm -hmm. question. If you right. ask people, are you worried about X? Yeah. Say, yeah, 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 yeah. But if you open end, what's the most important problem right now? Overwhelming number one is the economy and inflation. Overwhelming. Mm, yeah. Distant second place is bad government. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> in general. And <laughs> middle, of the list, top, yeah. middle of the list of the top 10 is the situation with Russia. And not even on the top 10. It doesn't make yeah. the top 10. It makes the top 20 when you, is climate and environment. Yeah. When you ask the open-ended question, politicians are are intimately familiar with polls, not physics, and I'm sure they understand that reality. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so. So that's the optimism is uh, eventually, we'll fix it. and we'll, we'll fix, fix it, it because because when you <laughs> yeah when you cut through all the noise uh, and you just ask people what are you really worried about, they're worried about the right things. Really, is, no, is they want they want they want energy to be cheap and available. Yeah. Uh, and the evidence that the path that politicians have put us on is that it hasn't fulfilled that specific requirement. One of the greatest achievements in the history of human race has been moving the, the cost of food and fuel into the background. We've, we've mm. gone from a history of society where 80% of, of all economies were, were consumed by acquiring food and fuel. Mm -hmm. A modern economy pre-inflation 15% of economies are associated with purchasing food and fuel. Yeah. If you double the cost of food and fuel, you reverse one of the most beneficial progresses of history. Because the, the other money that's, you don't get more food or fuel by paying twice as much for it, you get the same, but yeah. you lose the money for things like entertainment, education, healthcare, and the environment. That's profoundly destructive politically and morally. And, I, and, and people intuitively get that. So mm. the promises of you know, solar's cheap, haven't been realized. I, I keep seeing it written over and over again. Yes, it's cheap when it's running, but <laughs> okay. It's just, okay, but when it's not running, where do I get my I'm power? Well, I'm also cheap when I'm running, but you know. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
I'm never cheap. That's why you know that right now. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not free, but uh, no, that's good. All right, that, that is I a good place cheap, to end. But I may be, yeah, yeah. Uh, how does that go? I might not be free. I might, I'm not free, but I'm not cheap. Yeah, whatever it is. Whatever it is. Uh, uh, we won't go there. <laughs> All right, so uh, Mark Mills, thank you again for uh, for making time. The Cloud Revolution available wherever fine books are sold, uh, but most especially available at the Amazon uh, link that we will put in the show notes. And uh, yeah, and and I, I know that you come down to Houston for, uh, once in a while because you got to check on those 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 boys over there that you're working with. So <laughs> so give us give us Make a sure heads up when you're, give us a heads up when you're here. But uh, yeah. thanks again. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. Mark Mills and his book. Mark and his book. Uh, always a pleasure to have them back. Uh, to have them back on the show. And I, you know, I think. Uh, and I think while while we while Mark and I were talking, I said I, I said you know ha- talked about having him on the show before, but I think he hasn't. I don't think I've had him on this show. I think it was on the other one when I used to host the Oil and Gas Digital Doers podcast, which uh, which I don't host anymore, by the way. So uh, it's got a, it's got a new a better host. So for those of you who haven't been listening to that show because of me, <laughs> you should check it out again because Joanne Meyer is doing a fantastic job. It's still part of the Oil and Gas Global Network and Oil and Gas, and she's taking it a little bit different direction than I went so uh, uh, and it's good it's good so uh, so check that show out uh, not yet well okay the rest of everything I'm going to say from this point forward isn't that important so if you want to go listen to Joanne right now that's fine or uh, you can just you can I just got two more minutes let's see what do I got to tell you oh uh, Mark I think I think I haven't had Mark on this show before but anyway it's always always great talking with Mark and uh, and I know these are these are um, hotly debated controversial topics and and everybody's got a little bit different of uh, of a view and an opinion on it but uh but his is one and he's certainly been around long enough and seen enough things to uh to know a few things so uh, and and by the way uh, it's a good book so go uh, there's a, there's a link in the show notes go check out the book uh, if you if you need something to read this weekend all right, that's going to wrap it up. Uh, I think uh, anything else I got now? Nah. Well, oh, yeah, don't forget about uh, OGGN Unscripted, the unscripted live stream video TV talk show-like thing that we are doing uh, once a month. It's coming up soon. Uh, well, I, you know, if you're listening to this episode when it comes out, uh, which is somewhere around May, um, May 20-something, then... Um, then oh, and then unscripted. The next episode of unscripted is right around the corner. It's going to happen on June second, and uh, if you if, if if June second has already passed for you, then it's not too late because it will be it will be available on demand, as are all the previous episodes. And uh, and there's nothing wrong with uh, binge watching unscripted because uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we there, there's cocktails, there's ping pong, there's great conversation. The guests are really smart. They have to be really smart because it's unscripted. So we uh, we have to get people who can just come in and talk off the cuff about interesting things and they do it's amazing and uh, Kayla and I my co-host Kayla Ball uh, are, are we, we just have a great time so check check that out you can you can uh, you can find it on our LinkedIn page you can find it on our YouTube channel oh just Google OGGN unscripted and you'll find it all right that's gonna do it thanks to uh, all of you again for listening uh, not not sure not not sure what's the next thing for us uh, <laughs> Apple Apple wants to talk to us so uh, I'll have an update on that next time but thanks for making us a big deal and uh, thanks to the OGGN OGG again. <laughs> 
<laughs> crew. Sometimes you try to save time by talking too fast, and you just it's like it's like when you it's like when you're trying to save time by driving too fast, and then you get a ticket, and it just slows down the whole process. So uh, anyway, thanks to the crew for all the hard work, most especially my audio fixer guy, Mr. Mac Roman, who always makes us sound fantastic. And remember. Anytime you hear somebody saying something about this industry being behind the times, slow to change, not innovating, that is when you got to give them that history lesson or, you know, whatever, however you want to present it to them, however you want to present it to them uh, so that they can see the light. And then, of course, you can end that little lesson with we were tech before tech was cool. Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil & Gas Tech Podcast. A production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGDN.com.